This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Chasing Story. My Chicago Film Festival. Opening Scenes. And Centuries of Darkness. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. So before we get started on the official huts of this podcast, it's time for a brief preamble hut in which we acknowledge that the great running story arc, the unexpected story arc of this podcast has now come to what should hopefully be an end, or at least will be another four seasons before anyone tries to revive it. Doug Ford uh, lost to John Tory, a.k.a. Steve Boring Steve in Boring. the Toronto uh, mayoral race. John Tory is the candidate that Ken would vote for were he a Torontonian, but he is not, so he can mock him from a distance. I threw my support behind him. Oh, I can mock people I voted for. I've had years of practice doing that. Uh, well, that, that's always <laughs> the, the best fallback position. So the one surprise, actually, is that Doug Ford uh, did way better in uh, coming in second than yeah, I thought he would. Yeah, he did super well. I mean, I was, um, uh, I was looking at the numbers, and it looked like between Doug and Steve, it was like three quarters of the vote. I guess Olivia Chow did 22%, something like that. Yes. In a, an analogy that will make a lot of sense to all listeners, uh, she came down with a case of John Turner syndrome. Oh, not the de- dreaded John Turner syndrome. That was that was actually an underrated band, I think. Yes, <laughs> the John, Turner, the John syndrome. Turner syndrome. They were really good. Um, they didn't get out of the eastern seaboard a lot, but, you know, 
They did some yeah. terrific studio work. Yeah, and the attempt <laughs> to bring them back as the John Turner experience was a not, disappointing. Not sadly. what anyone wanted to hear, certainly. Yeah, well, for one thing, John Turner wasn't in it. So the, uh, <laughs> yes. it was the experience of John Turner without the actual John Turner. Um, in Canadian politics, John Turner was sort of in the wings as the heir apparent to the head of the federal liberal party and therefore the prime ministership, uh, except he was out in those wings for so long that when he came back, he was totally rusty and uh, uninspiring. Mm. And unfortunately, Olivia Chow, who had big expectations for her at the beginning of the campaign, uh, turned out also to not inspire Toronto voters. And it didn't help that the progressive faction uh, formed its usual circular firing squad uh, pretty early. Apparently she's uh, done things to make herself unpopular around them, but uh, uh, sadly our progressive forces in Toronto don't really know who they are and I think would rather be righteous and out of power as uh, sadly is often too much the case. But anyway, she just, uh, she didn't bring it. Well, you know, from, from, from their lips to God's ears, that's what I say. Uh, yeah. Um, and, but also I think it's another testament to the fact that you can spend a lot of time talking about personalities in political campaigns. And then when you look at a map, uh, if you look at the map of where Doug Ford's support was, it's a map of our big, exurbs that surround the city that mm -hmm. were uh, clamped onto our city by the right-wing provincial government uh, by probably more than a decade ago now to achieve this very effect is right. to have people who are uh, more conservative and have sort of a, a hostile uh, view of the downtown as an unpleasant place they have to try and get their cars through and buy gum they're not going to use transit and so that group of people still uh, came out to support uh, Doug Ford now I guess the question would be, you know, if Rob was still running, you know, how many of those uh, would have gone with the the urbane, sophisticate right wing candidate mm -hmm. in John Tory? But that's a hypothetical. But anyway, that's the. I mean, I guess is 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 the question that Doug Ford's truculence and general unappealing personality drove away as many people as Rob Ford's delightful murder and drug habits. Well, would have driven away? I mean, do you think it came out as a wash? Because you were previously suspecting that because Doug Ford was uh, Rob Ford without the bubbly charisma that he was actually going to um, uh, not do it even as well in Ford Nation. Well, he didn't do as well. He, he lost. Yeah, and, right, and yeah Rob won. Obviously, yes. <laughs> but, you know, we didn't know Rob was on, on crack. You know, b back when he was running, we just thought uh, Rob Ford was a jerk. It was, was, a, just was like a bumptious Doug, right? goof. All right, of yeah. the peccadilloes came out afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, but Obviously, there's still a big constituency to be sold a bill of goods on, uh, you know, how much tax money you can raise and still have services and mm -hmm. uh, whether you can will uh, subways into existence just through mind power rather than having the money to build them. Uh, that's also a trait of John Tory's transit plan, but uh, he seems more reliable. I think that um, from... From the Canadian bloggers that I was reading, everyone's transit plans seem to, you know, run up against the where is the money going to come from problem. Even um, uh, Olivia Chow's apparently yes. got criticized for that. Well, so. if we had um, money to build all the transit we needed, it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> it would have been yes. solved already, yes, right? indeed. So the question Gosh, is... Gosh, it's almost as though this is why you have elections. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's safe to say that uh, Olivia Chow had the least bad transit plan because it's the... was actually fiscally the most conservative one. It was one that would cost uh, less, but it involves having LRTs on the surface and mm. uh, people who drive, especially people who drive from the exurbs into the downtown core, don't want their lanes of traffic being taken over by a train. So 
that's the the sort of big fuss and and you know Toronto is being choked by gridlock and the all of the things that would solve it are way too expensive mm-hmm. so uh in the olden times when the original subways were built they technocrats could just say we're going to take a whole bunch of tax money and build subways, but uh, that's not so easy. And anymore. we're going to knock down any neighborhood that gets in the way or exactly. whatever. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's the uh, somewhat anticlimactic conclusion to our crazy roller coaster ride. But Rob Ford did get reelected as a, as a councilman. As a councilman, it will make him by no means the most insane councilman. He'll just be sort of on a par with a couple of others. Wow. Well, you know, uh, being a municipal councilor is where the nuts sort of settle in. in Canadian politics, mm-hmm. um, as it is, I'm sure, uh, other places Oh, yeah, as well. in Chicago, absolutely. We have uh, all manner of delightful aldermen, um, and perhaps someday we'll, we'll have an alderman who captures the globe's attention to the same degree that, uh, that Rob Ford has. I saw a, a, a play that was a meta-adaptation of Moby Dick, and throughout it, I, I kept thinking, gosh, it, it's going to be a shame to have Robin finally float uh, free of, of Rob Ford on, on the coffin labeled uh, Steve Boring. But there yes, you go. So there that's you what go. happened. Uh, so anyway, that's uh, that's the story. The, the rest of the world has has lost an entertainment uh, <laughs> exercise. But hopefully, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe it's worse having a more competent person who's going to follow the same sort of developer-friendly policies that the last guy did. But um, there we go. Yep, that's why they that's why they count the votes. Um, yes, well, we shall uh, we shall have to see what uh, we do for programming here on Ken and Robin after after Rob Ford has uh, has so graciously departed the scene. But I'm sure we'll come up with something. Well, it's your turn, Chicago. <laughs> right. Okay. I'll I'll put Rom right on it. The rattle of dice, the crunch of Doritos, the sight of strangely taupe paneling tell us we have entered the comforting confines, the friendly confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, we are uncharacteristically out of breath because we are chasing story. And I uh, like the way that that sounds, but I confess that, Robin, you will have to tell me what I meant when I just said that. So this is a term that I heard used by the documentary filmmaker Neil Berkeley, who currently has a film called Harmontown about Dan Harmon, the creator of the TV show Community, and the uh, road trip his sort of live podcast show took. And in a Q&A for the uh, film that I heard in actually an episode of the Harmontown podcast, he referred to the process of being a documentarian who works in his style, the style where you go and follow somebody around and hope that something happens, as chasing story. And I'm sure that that's a term that other documentarians use. He uh, It had the uh, whiff of a, a specialized buzzword about it. But it made me think about the parallels, uh, which you don't necessarily think are the case between being a GM and being a documentary filmmaker. Of course, as a GM, you're often everybody sitting around thinking something up. So it's far from a document of something happening in reality. But like a documentary filmmaker, a GM does not and should not seek control or full control over what happens and where the story is going, but ideally can sort of serve to kind of edit in real time to find where the story is and where it's going. I've often heard the argument, which I don't buy actually, that role-playing is not a narrative form except when you talk about it afterwards and that's when you form a story. I think that's kind of a ridiculous argument because there are too many story-like decisions and story-like properties 
that are going on at the table. It's just an improvised story form. And there are ways that you can look at documentaries and find sort of inspirations and parallels to gaming experiences. So, for example, another documentary shot in that style where the filmmakers follow people around and see what story emerges is one called China Heavyweight. And it's about a couple of high school students in rural China who are convinced by these uh, traveling uh, boxing coaches that the way to get out of their uh, miserable tobacco farming lives is to become championship boxers. (laughs) And the story that clearly emerges over time and that the filmmakers have edited to present to you is the fact that this turns out to be a false hope. And so the follows these two guys as they both divergently go through their separate paths and both wind up disappointed and, and uh, you know, those dreams don't pan out. And so in order to make that a story, you have to make it a circular story in which the beginning is the same as the ending. So it ends with a scene in which the boxing coaches come back to the school another year to recruit a bunch of other people with the same empty promises. Mm -hmm. And there are all sorts of little side notes and tangents along the way that give you a portrait of where China is today. But overall, that's the story that they've chosen to assemble. So Ken, do you find it a useful metaphor to think of a, a GM as trying to sort of assemble a story from the disparate elements that the players introduce? I I think it's certainly a more helpful metaphor than the one where GMs are storytellers, because the the chasing story, I think, it it leads toward, I don't know that it leads to, but it points toward good habits of play, whereas saying, as the GM, I'm a storyteller, leads to bad habits of play, because that's where you get your railroading, and that's where you get your uh, favorite NPCs who can't be harmed because they have to be there at the end, and it's where a lot of really bad GMing habits come out of is this notion that as the GM, my job is to tell a story. No, your job is not to tell a story. Your job is to facilitate an emerging story. And I think that um, I prefer emergent to chasing, but I grant you that if it doesn't seem to be emerging, someone's got to run it down. And like all hard, unthankless jobs, that is the job of the GM. And so I think chasing story is, is a more uh, productive uh, metaphor and maybe a, a more productive way to think about it. And I think the documentary angle is kind of interesting with the always remembering that like all, you know, sort of uh, not in the moment entertainment. So everything that isn't, you know, jazz or role playing, you can cut and recut and reassemble. So when you see something that looks like a story like King of Kong or Grizzly Man, you have to understand that that was very much assembled. That The documentary form is in a lot of ways, you know, not to be all Derridavian about it, but kind of a lie. Whereas when you're in the moment playing the game, story happens when it happens and it's your job to recognize it and ideally shine a light on it or maybe pin something to it. But the notion that you're you're out there in the field and story might pop up and you're like the catcher in the rye trying to run out and grab it before it uh, dies of um, uh, exposure is is maybe kind of a, an interesting way to look at the job of the GM. I think it's interesting because it implies that you are following the players rather than leading them. Yeah. And also that you are, unlike the documentary filmmaker, though, you are grabbing up bits of scenery as you're running along chasing the story and putting it in front of the players in order for them to interact with in a bid to add elements that lend more structure to what is otherwise an an improvised experience that could just sort of ramble in a bunch of directions. So 
for example, recently in the Feng Shui game that I'm running, the players, uh, as my players sometimes do, got a little overwhelmed by the villains and made a most unaction hero-y decision, which was to run to another time period to get away from the uh, main <laughs> bad guy. Yeah. Um, and then once they were there for a couple of weeks, they're like, why did we come here again? And it's because, well, because you had this moment of not, not behaving like Feng Shui characters. And rather than my stepping on them at that time, because I knew that I could chase the story and have the story chase them, uh, I wanted them to feel that they could go to this other place. And that mm -hmm. uh, just as you would in probably an um, episodic TV show, there's a couple of change of pace episodes. And then I started bringing in elements related to that main bad guy that reminded them that there was still a story that momentarily they were running away from and so now at the end of the last session they've gone back to the netherworld and they're going to finally go and start gathering allies to confront the big bad can you think of examples in your recent gaming where you've sort of uh, chased story and brought um, more of a structure to uh your emergent elements that the players are supplying well um i think that in in a lot of ways what we're doing now is sort of there, there's an element to that because whenever I run a game like the one that I'm running right now, which is Unknown Armies set in the historical American West, there is an element of not just chasing story as the players make their own decisions to interact in some odd way. And it's because I have really good, really proactive players. Just, just last uh, Monday, just yesterday's session, they decided to summon the Furies because that never works out badly. It's standard uh, it's, procedure of encounter problem. To summon furies. And then about halfway through, they were like, well, we want to summon more Valkyries than furies. And I'm like, yeah, all right, fine, whatever you want to call it. But you're summoning furies, and we all know what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> but a lot of it is also sort of prospecting for story elements that are, you know, littered around uh, the American West. And so either because of the way that history works or the way that I work, there's never a shortage of unknown armies-worthy things if you do about five minutes of research, sometimes less than that, on virtually any historical event. And right now, the Lincoln County War, which it turns out happened just up the up the creek a piece from Roswell, New Mexico, is offering all manner of, of ways to go. So, in a way, I'm not so much chasing story as I, in, in this particular sense, am staying still, and as story blows past, I'm attaching it to the ongoing, to the ongoing narrative. Um, in terms of chasing stuff, I think that the, let's see, the last time that I actually had to chase stuff around is maybe in the space game where the players had a similar sort of, we're going to go left, uh, because that's what we feel like doing in the moment. And then I don't so much have to chase it as I have to race ahead of them and make sure that there's story there when they get to wherever it is they're going. Right. I mean, I, and so how concerned are you with how much one episode agrees with another? Are you concerned with maintaining a through line where things that are introduced in the early sessions continue to be important? Or are you just as happy to have a more sort of uh, multi-threaded storyline that doesn't necessarily have to uh, resolve the things that it sets up at first? I mean, I, I guess at the, at the risk of sounding like uh, the new wave, I find that story beats that emerge seem to be sort of predestined to emerge, that you get a, you know, someone will say something or do something early on in the, in the campaign, and then 
they'll do something that rhymes with it or recollects it two or three sessions down. And then the players, of course, are feeding into the same mechanic or the same dynamic that I am as the GM. And they start recognizing it's like, oh, this is why my character is falling victim to mimetic effects again, because he's always falls victim to mimetic effects. And there's no mechanical thing on his character sheet that says that he does, but they decide that that's how play builds and that they want to have these callbacks because, of course, we're all of us nurtured on serial media. And so I, I think that my players tend to bring that out, and I am sort of spoiled for choice in terms of what to recognize. I don't usually run games that have a, a big narrative arc where I think this will be the game in which we're going to wind up at this point. I, I look at games that say, all right, I'm going to take them to a decision point, and when the characters decide what to do, then we'll know what point they're going to aim to. When I ran the Shakespeare game, for example, we didn't know if it was going to be a comedy or a tragedy until about two-thirds of the way through. And then we said, oh, this is the tragedy of one of our characters, the Manticore, uh, heir to the throne of England, falling and becoming a villain. And that's and that's the story that we're telling now. We're doing a Macbeth sort of story. And so we then pointed things toward a Macbeth-y sort of an ending because we were playing a self-consciously theatrical game. With this historical game, we all know that it's going to end in 1901 when... Uh, the uh, McKinley is assassinated at the Pan American Exposition, and that's the end of the 20th century and the uh, the end of the 19th century, the end of the West, and the new America of, of Teddy Roosevelt and, and modernity begins to spring up from the old America, and and so we know that that's going to happen. But what element of 1901 is going to turn out in retrospect to be the the sort of the the key thing that rhymes with the 1877 when we began? I don't know that any more than the players do, and we're sort of playing to find out, I guess what turn out to be the great themes in our unknown American history. Right. And that's a really interesting sort of reversal of the way that you usually try to create a semblance of structure over the course of a role-playing campaign, because usually you know what your beginning is, and then you try to find something that you established fairly early on that the player is seized on as a matter of sort of mutual interest and concern, and then mm -hmm. develop that and have that pay off. Whereas you all know what the payoff is going to be. You don't know the exact details of that, but you're working toward it. And by working toward it, you are chasing that story. And there's a, a sort of a nether zone where there's a bunch of story elements that you haven't connected from where you are to where you know you're going. But that Already, by having a particular climax whose exact meaning and ramifications you don't know yet, you've already, you know, got this goal marker, this uh, finish line tape to to run toward as you chase story. Yeah, and the thing is that it can't, you know, you can't really say that it's railroaded. It's not like I wrote William McKinley's assassination. That's in history, and we just knew that we we're playing until the, you know, the end of the 19th century, and that's when the 19th century ends. So. We all sort of agreed mutually that that's what we're playing to. It's, it was not a, a system where I'm saying, we're going to play the story of how Elminster became king of the Forgotten Realms. We're, we're not doing that. We're playing the story of, you know, the, the American West and its, and its end. And in a way, if, if players are worried about railroading but still also want to have a big finish, <laughs> mm -hmm. that's the way to do it, right? Is to say, well, the big climax of this campaign is going to be the McKinley assassination or Elminster ascending to the throne. And it's up to you to decide how that happens and what it means. So yeah. that just because that's already determined, uh, conversely, you actually feel uh, freedom because you everybody knows where you're headed. It's not an unpleasant surprise that you wind up there. And mm. so th then you get to exercise control 
over exactly how that happens and what it means. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's there's all manner of sort of interesting Phillips in this specific experience of playing a game that is tied to American history as closely as this one is, and it's going to be, I think, one of my more you know, if, if this works, it's going to work really, really well. And if it doesn't, then it's going to go off the rails fairly spectacularly. Uh, just because there's going to come a point at which they're going to really, really want to, I don't know, kill Billy the Kid. And it's going to be, well, do I let him die early or do I not let him die early? What's, you know, how privileged is, you know, I don't know, President Garfield's assassination compared to McKinley's? If they stop Guiteau, should I let that happen? Should I prevent Chester Allen Arthur from ever being president? And then is the country owed an assassination? And so do I have to you know, kill Benjamin Harrison or somebody. So it's, it's going to be kind of an interesting feel as we figure out what the ramifications are of the, of the game there. But in terms of story elements, uh, so many of those are, and I think rightly being imported by the players with their decisions of what their characters want and what their characters are doing and what kind of, you know, because it's under armies, what kind of horrible mistakes they've already made that are going to come back and bite them. In, in the not-too-distant future. Well, speaking of imposing structure on things that are rambling and improvised, <laughs> uh, that's the end of this segment. Let's move on to the next one. How often have you said to yourself, if only there were an equivalent to Robin Laws's brilliant, award-winning, improvisational Armitage Files campaign, only for Knight's Black Agents, Ken Height's vampire spy thriller RPG. More often than you might believe, Robin. So often, in fact, that I went and made one, called the Dracula Dossier, and it's kickstarting now. You interest me strangely. That's just how I interest, I suppose. Does this dossier have any connection to Bram Stoker's immortal novel? It's not a novel, Robin. It was the after-action report of Operation Edom, the first 1894 attempt by British intelligence to recruit a vampire. We've unredacted Stoker's first draft of that report, and now the truth can be told. Told in the form of a collaborative, improvisational spy thriller gaming, through the hyper-surveilled streets of London and the desolate Carpathian Mountains, I devoutly hope. Your hopes are answered. You play burned spies who follow the clues in the Dracula dossier to hunt and kill Dracula for good 120 years later. Clues, you say? Clues, I do say. Not just the sources and methods Stoker's first draft revealed, but annotations to the dossier made by three generations of MI6 analysts tracking Edom's operations since then. A doomed commando operation in World War II Romania, a mysterious mole hunt in 1970s London, and the dubious 2005 decision to unleash Dracula on Al-Qaeda as the ultimate deniable asset. And since everyone knows the story of Dracula, players can jump into the action anywhere they want, investigate any lead, and find danger and mystery waiting for them. Danger? Mystery? Dozens of NPCs with many possible agendas? Possibly vampirized organizations from the Romanian secret police on down? locations from Carfax to a CIA black site in Bucharest, and maybe even a magic item or two, if that's the kind of thing you want to look for in your game, of course. So to sum up, the Dracula dossier is a fully improvisational Knight's Black Agents campaign built around the secret history of both Stoker's novel and of European espionage, full of dangerous encounters and subtle conspiracies, and it's kickstarting now. And just like Edom did in 1894, I've brought in an Irish writer to do all the hard bit. <laughs> Hellgrain superstar Gareth Ryder Hanrahan is busily writing up a stretch goal or three even as we speak. You, Gareth, Bragg, Stoker, Van Helsing, Count Dracula, could this game get any more bloated with blood and or awesomeness? You'll have to follow the clues to the Kickstarter page to find out, Robin. Clues like Hellgrain.
Dracula dossier. But bring an appetite for adventure, because we're cooking with garlic. The smell of popcorn and the lack of sound of a large file on a hard drive being projected onto a glittering screen tell us that we've once more entered the confines of the cinema hut. And this time out, we're going to review Ken's experience at the Chicago International Film Festival. Uh, some of the titles overlap a little with the ones that uh, played at TIFF, some of which I selected and some of which I didn't. And I was wondering whether it's uh, SIF or CHIF, but it sounds like it's KIF. Uh, so, Ken, before you talk about individual titles, would you like to grumble about the uh, merely acceptable general level of the films that you saw this year? I think grumbling, um, I do most of my grumbling in, in uh, the live journal entry when I do it, but it is a film festival that was started in 1965. It's, it's, uh, this was its 50th year, which was great. And it's very much one of those film festivals that, because it started right there, it's sort of the you know birth of the new wave. It's very, very tied in with whatever is happening in sort of mainstream European art house cinema, sort of middlebrow European cinema. And what that means is that that's where a lot of the reflexes of the programmers, they've had, we've had the same programmer, the same artistic director, at least for pretty much the whole run of the show, Michael Kutza. And that, that shows because so is he in his eighties or something? He's in his seventies. He was 22 when he founded the festival. And uh, this was something that uh, we found out because he did an introduction for the, uh, for the silent uh, feature. Why be good? Colleen Moore, the silent starlet who was unfairly forgotten by history because all of her films have disappeared, but retired to Chicago and she was put together with uh, Michael Kutza by Chicago, um, reporter, cultural journalist, gladhander fixer named Irv Cupsonit, who if you are not a Chicagoan, that name means literally nothing to you, and if you're a Chicago of a certain age, it means pretty much everything to you. Um, but anyway, he put Colleen Moore and Michael Kutza together, and Colleen Moore said two things. First, you're 27, not 22, and second, you have to wear glasses, because no <laughs> one will believe you're going to start a film festival. <laughs> and so, she basically introduced him to her great and good friend Myrna Loy, and they were off. And and that's how it became the oldest competitive film festival in North America, basically, is because this hippie kid with a dream and a love of, um, uh, I guess, Godard or something, um, hooked up with the, the forgotten flapper and built us a film festival. And so the trouble, of course, is that, you know, like many things that succeed amazingly well early on, it has stayed in that settler effect rut and winds up programming the same sorts of films which I think for a, a medium that is as dynamically changing as cinema is not necessarily the best way to play it. And so I wind up, because I'm pretty good at reading film festival descriptions now, I wound up, you know, as, I, as I've said, my average uh, film was a little above average, which I suppose is better than the alternative, and I've managed to avoid most of the real dogs. But it is, um, it's a shame because this is the same festival that, that taught me about Hong Kong film, back in the 90s, and it's the festival that showed me South Korean film when, when those started to emerge into the West, and I, I kind of feel like I'm missing something really terrific that it is um, uh, not really making the effort to show me right now. So speaking of South Korean film, your favorite film is one of my favorite films from TIFF, and that's Girl at My Door. Yes. By July Jung. Mm -hmm. That is, it's a pretty much perfect uh, example of the daylight noir, but the pacing is less like we understand a noir to be, it sort of speeds up at the end and, and becomes more noir-paced, but it starts out as much more of a character and setting 
uh, exploration film, and only as it goes on do you begin to understand that what you're getting is just absolutely first-rate noir genre film. And then, because it's Korea, it has none of the predictability that uh, that a Hollywood film would have, and also because it's Korea, just the quality of all the performances and all the editing and the soundtrack and everything else are just absolutely A-list. And so, uh, briefly, the the plot of the film is it's about a police uh, lieutenant who is... uh, sent away from uh, Seoul for an indiscretion that is uh, having a lesbian relationship. And she mm-hmm. uh, turns out to be a pretty heavy-duty alcoholic with all sorts of uh, problems, but she uh, sort of quasi-adopts or starts protecting this young girl who's being abused by her family, and the uh, her the father of the character is sort of important to the economy of this backwater town. And right. so it's all about the pressures and dangers in that relationship between the young girl and this uh, troubled police officer. Yes, as well as the, you know, dangers in the relationship between her uh, father and the town and the town and the police and every. I mean, it's like all great noirs, you know, the more you find out, the more you realize you're destroying the social order and you're helpless to do anything about it. It's just a, it, I mean, it's it's a terrific example of that and it's it got a, a great sort of a, a policier feel as well as being a really interesting character study of the, um, uh, of, of the police chief. And I found, I've, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to spoil anything, but I found the ending a tremendously strange and interesting ending that I want to talk to you about sometime when we're not going to ruin it for everyone who hasn't seen the movie. <laughs> yeah, which is almost no one because yeah. this film is now making it through the festival circuit. So all of these films will, uh, over the course of a year, sort of start hitting uh, theatrical and then going to physical media and increasingly to streaming. So uh, a lot of the stuff that plays these circuits uh, winds up on uh, Netflix and, in fact, is yeah. more available than it has ever been. R- but right, you yeah. want to go to my last year's TIFF picks and your last year's KIF picks to find the things that will be filtering onto Netflix now. Yeah, they're on streaming now. Uh, the next thing you have on your list is a uh, Moss Mickelson Western, to which I say, sign me up. And, and that was exactly what I said. And it, it turns out that I signed up correctly. It is a absolutely unapologetic, straightforward Western. If you compare it to the uh, Kevin Costner uh, movie Open Range, which was also an absolutely unapologetic, straightforward Western with the uh, difference that Mads Mikkelsen is about a million times better than Kevin Costner. but And there probably isn't a long 20-minute sequence about the exact process by which uh, a wheel is removed from a rut? No, there is there is no uh, wheel removal. There is um, uh, instead Jeffrey Dean Morgan in a very dirty Union cavalry hat uh, riding around doing his best Lee Van Cleef impression. So there's a... It's it's very much like... I, I don't know what it is about Europeans. I mean, there's no nothing wrong with Ennio Morricone. He's a great director. His westerns are phenomenal. You mean Sergio Leone? Yeah, right. Yeah, Sergio Leone. Exactly. His his films are phenomenal, but they they are they are just in love with the, those westerns, and so when they make their attempt at a John Ford western, it still winds up being you know three sides around the barn. But in you know, but in no case is it is it bad. It's it's a it's a great uh it it's a great looking thing. The um the director Christian Levering does a great job filming the the South African landscape and making it look like the mythical American West. Uh, Jonathan Price has a great character turn as um, uh, sort of the, the, the worm at the core of civilization's apple. He plays the undertaker and mayor of, of, of the town, which is a great little uh, metaphor. Not that uh, subtlety of metaphor is something you need in a Western. Um, and uh, the, the lovely and talented uh, Eva Green is the, uh, is the, the woman done wrong who then 
as, as we do in our modern era, comes back uh, with a vengeance. So there's there's a lot of really great character work. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen is, of course, terrific. Um, he's got that stoic, Western, Clint Eastwoody hero thing going on, but he also he, he breaks down when his character um, uh, is, is broken, and you, you sort of you value his stoicism more because you've seen him lose it. So the next item on your list, which you've alluded to already, is a brand spanking new movie from 1929 called Why Be Good by uh, William A. Siter, who's sort of a, uh, a second rank director of the auteur era. Tell us about that. That was something that uh, Colleen Moore, as I mentioned, she basically created the flapper. Uh, people think it was Louise Brooks, but that's just because Louise Brooks's movies survive. She, it turns out, gave all of her movies to the Museum of Modern Art because she knew that uh, her buddy boyfriend, probably King Vidor, uh, did the same thing. And what happened, though, she came back in a decade and all of her movies were gone because apparently, and no one knows exactly what happened. My suspicion is I went and got them with my time machine. But I think his name is David Thompson. He's the guy who runs the Portanone Silent Film Festival. And every year he brings a silent over to uh, Kiff and he shows us a really great silent. And this year he brought a Colleen Moore silent. And his theory is that what happened is univer- someone at uh, Universal wanted uh, the films, and they said, that's our property, you have to give it to us. And then someone else at Universal said, we don't want a bunch of junky old silence, and threw them out. But the larger point is that her films are pretty much completely lost, but they tracked down uh, Why Be Good in an Italian film archive because they had the soundtrack. It was It's uh, 29, so it's late enough that they had a synchronized uh, soundtrack. And Vitaphone, unlike other uh, period uh, producers, saved all of its soundtracks in absolutely perfect master reels. So you have you know, the Jimmy Dorsey band playing jazz just like, you know, you were listening to it in 1929. It's a perfect soundtrack and a really well-restored film. And what it is, is it's a romantic comedy in which there is no idiot plotting. The Nobody tells a stupid lie. Uh, and all the characters, except for the bad guy, work from completely understandable moral aims. So it's it basically, it's an immensely better film than any romantic col- comedy that Hollywood has made for the last 15 years. And according to your blog, the director of the Portanone Film Festival is David Robinson. David Robinson. David yeah, Thompson David Thompson's is the other guy. Yeah. Noted film critic. Right. Um, so let's move on to some uh, genre things that are uh, lower down on your list, but in this case, not so much lower down. This is a film that uh, was at TIFF that I didn't see because it was getting distribution, but has a big buzz around it, and it's It Follows, and it seems to me that the theme of this is very appropriate in our year of uh, cyber-stalking and harassment. It's called It Follows. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not quite as on the nose as you think it's going to be about that, because there's a lot of other things going on. I think it's more about mortality than it is about stalking, but it takes the fear of stalking and the fear of making a connection that turns out to be toxic and turns it into an invisible specter, a la the Horla, that is following the heroine of the film. And the, it, it's shot and cast and edited and soundtracked in pretty much perfect 1980s uh, style. Um, and so it's very much a 1980s stalker film in the same way that uh, Ty West's House of the Devil was a 1980s social haunted house neighborhood horror film. And I, I hesitate to give anything away. Uh, the, the the young lady at the beginning, our, our heroine, uh, has this specter put on her by a date that she unadvisably goes on. And the result is to take a premise and just 
look at it unflinchingly, which turns out to be a really good way to do horror. And uh, as I as I mentioned, the guy behind me in uh, like literally right behind me, this may have been his first ever horror film or whatever, but he was scared out of his wits by every single thing that happened. So that was a uh, that was that was kind of fun because I I normally see these things with slightly more jaded audiences. And so that guy was was providing a really nice infectious uh, terror for everybody. You've also got a teen murder noir from Poland called mm-hmm. The Word. Yeah, this is a uh, one about a schoolgirl who wants her boyfriend to kill the girl that he has been canoodling with. And it spends a, about half or maybe even two-thirds of the film with her screwing his courage to the sticking place. She's got a very Lady Macbeth Iago type Shakespearean motiveless malignity to her. Uh, she she plays uh, the, the the actress plays the Eliza Richembel plays the character as sort of a sociopath as opaque to us, but the way that she plays it is that it she might be sort of standing in for everyone in a generation that we don't understand that is com- just as happy to communicate electronically as it is personally, and in which signifiers and behavior are all symbolic. Um, it, it's so it's got some generational horror to it as well as just being a really terrific character study. And uh, there was a guy in the audience who was um, I want to know why uh, her father didn't wind up with you know with the family at the end of the movie. And it like have you ever seen a movie before? It's because <laughs> she's a horrible murderer and horrible murderers should not get what they want. That's why <laughs> I've seen a lot of Q and A's and from that I've learned never to stay for Q and A's of fiction films for precisely that reason. Often the director says something interesting or valuable. And so I, I, I'm an idiot sometimes, and I do that. I've always got another movie or perhaps a sandwich to go to. <laughs> yes, perhaps <laughs> a date with a refill on the Coke. Um, another noir, uh, this one with Stellan Skarsgård, is In Order of Disappearance. Yeah, this was sort of, um, you know, a snowplow Norway version of Taken in which Stellan Skarsgård's son uh, uh, dies of an apparent drug overdose, and Skarsgård refuses to believe that it happened, and sure enough, his overdose was faked by the local mobster who is sort of a vegan, modern, hipster mob boss in the same way that the bad guys in North by Northwest lived in that modernist house out in Mount Rushmore for some reason. It's the tofu that makes them kill. It is. It's, 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 it's tofu and, and straight lines that make you kill. If you, if you have ornament in your life, you don't become a bad guy. That's, that's what I've learned from every movie since 1950. But it's got sort of a lighter lighter touch to it, sort of a Tarantino-y sort of a feel uh, to, to all the, the, the murdering and such. It's less uh, straightforward than Taken in that way, so it's a little more ironic, but obviously Skarsgård, you know, brings a lot of weight to, to, the, to the main uh, performance, so it, so it works on that level as well. And, you know, it, it, it wants to be more than it is. It wants to think about because Skarsgård is apparently a Danish immigrant to Norway, and he's the good immigrant, and then there's some Serbian mobsters who are the bad immigrants, and it, it's all about who is who and, and who belongs where. But in the end, it's just snowplow revenge murder, and there's nothing wrong with that. Well done. Uh, next up is another movie that played uh, at uh, TIFF in the Midnight Madness slot, and I didn't uh, see it because I figured being a homegrown product, I'd have another shot at it, especially since... Uh, I know a guy who knows the guys who made this film. This is The Editor, which is a Giallo parody. Yeah, it's it's very uh, essentially scary movie Giallo, uh, with everything that that implies, or maybe the uh, Zucker and Abrams Giallo movie, if you want to think of it that way. It's, it's very much the jokes 
are not organic to the material, they are organic to making fun of the material, and if that's what you want, then it's great. I dinged it a little bit because what I wanted was something more like Hot Fuzz or OSS 117, where the where the jokes come from inside the material. But, you know, you can certainly argue that with a giallo, you know, subtlety is, is not something that you should aim for. And they certainly got the look right, they got the sound right, they got all the stupid blood right, the, the dubbed dialogue. I mean, it, it looks and feels very much like a like a, a like a B Giallo from you know say 1974 or so, uh, and uh, it was it was greatly enjoyable, but it was not it, it was not quite what I what I thought it ought to be. Are you familiar with these Astron Six guys? Have you seen? Uh, I've not yet seen Manborg. But, Manborg uh, or uh, Father's Day, which I suppose must be their slasher film. I would I would assume so. Um, next up is a title that you have strongly ambivalent feelings about, and is already in a limited release called the. Baba Duke, which is a, a, a imaginary friend gone awry movie. Mm-hmm. It's a not an imaginary friend gone awry. It's a monster under my bed gone awry. Ah, well, no, they start out awry and just they're, they're, yeah, they, it's pre awry. Uh, and the way that the the, the thing is introduced is the the kid gets to pick a book for his mom to read to him, and we've already learned that his mom is hanging by her last thread, and the kid has got horrible emotional damage, and. They are in too big a house, and so it's got that economic uh, feel that all uh, proper horror has had, at least since Amityville Horror. Um, and so he pulls a, a children's book that has no ISBN number and no publication data. And, well, that <laughs> to those of us of a bibliographic mindset, we already know this book is trouble. And when we open it up and it's a book about a horrible monster that invades your house and uh, possesses you and uh, and makes you kill your pets, then sure enough, that's what happens. Reading that book... It's, it's one of the lessons of horror. Don't read books. Don't read books. Don't do anything new. Uh, don't, don't stay don't in the house. Don't learn things. Don't learn things. Stay where you are. Yeah, the, the fundamentally conservative nature of the horror genre is an interesting tension with the uh, more radical politics of a lot of horror uh, creators, So, which, which is part of what I think makes that genre fun when it works. But here, Babadook is just amazingly, amazingly good for two acts, and then the ghost of Sigmund Freud shows up and ruins everything, the way that the ghost of Sigmund Freud has been doing since 1900. Um, and <laughs> so I... I I really really want to recommend that people who watch the movie uh, turn it off about um, seventy or, or sixty minutes in, uh, right after the the Babadook has come in and and things have gotten, and you think it can't get any worse. You're right, it actually can't. Just stop watching and you're done because the the ending really really weakens the film. I, I gave it a B plus, I think, in the moment and. The more I think about it, the more I think that that was a great on the curve as it was. Uh, that would be an interesting future HUD is just films, the way that they shift in your estimation and things that you thought were just okay when you saw them rise in your estimation and mm -hmm. uh, how things that you really loved the first time when you catch them again, you, you realize that uh, you see the glaring hole or they uh, just isn't there for you. Uh, well, uh, I think that uh, covers most of the sort of genre e-films and uh, those of you who want to see a complete list of what Ken checked out can... Uh, hit his live journal for the whole thing. But for now, I think it's time for us to uh, exit to uh, another hut, uh, this one also with story in mind.
shutter of IBM's Selectric Keys, the clink of ice in the glass as the bourbon is poured over it, the murmuring to self about this time for sure we're going to make it work, tell us that we are once more being told by us how to write good. And here in the land of how to write good, as you can tell from that seamless opening, we must be talking about good openings. Right. Uh, Robin, what besides... A, a beautiful set of Miz on Sen setting, like I just uh, performed. Do we need for our opening? Well, in speaking of uh, chasing structure and picking up things that were set up before, this is sort of the opposite question to what we were talking about in the Gaming Hut segment. Uh, in terms of if you are going to create a narrative that you were in charge of as a writer, how do you introduce it? How do you get things started and create something that is going to set up your through line, hook in the reader? and get them invested in what's to come, whether it's a long novel with a lot of different threads and perhaps multiple payoffs, or a short story, which needs to be really stripped down and elemental. How do you start a story well? And I would say that what you want are two key things, and then after that is the question of the execution. But however you choose to dress them up, if we're talking about a conventional, non-experimental narrative in which the reader is meant to identify with something or someone and care about the proceedings, you have to set up the conflict that makes the reader want one thing to happen and fear that another thing will happen. And, and this goes to the thing that I always say about the nature of narrative that I cover in Hamlet's Hit Points, is that emotional engagement is about oscillating between two possibilities. And if your introduction to your story does not as quickly as possible get the reader wanting one thing to happen and being afraid that the opposite thing will happen, you are risking a loss of engagement. And in my capacity looking at stories for uh, Stoneskin Press anthologies, the ones that always work really well are the ones that really quickly set up what that is. And that's the first half of your through line, that essential conflict that pulls you through the narrative that you then pay off at the end. And you cannot have a great beginning without a great ending. And often the things that happen in the ending will rhyme in some way, will refer back to what was set up in, in the ending. So it's sort of a set up development punchline structure in the case of a short story. So know what you want me to know in order to care about what you're doing and to orient me in what your story is going to be. So Ken, uh, when you're looking at a, at a short story or a novel, uh, what are you looking at in terms of what engages you when you uh, first get started? What are you looking for as a reader? What I'm usually looking for is evidence that something is going to happen, and by happen, it can already have happened, and I just really want the explanation. But normally, what hooks me, and I am admittedly a cheap date in this respect, is action, is something occurring. There's a an author named, um, well, he's not actually named Richard Stark, he's a pseudonym for Donald Westlake, but uh, the Parker novels uh, begin not just in medias res, but, you know, as the third bullet is hitting the wall, medias res. And I find that, you know, starting something with an action already underway is a vastly better way for, for me to be interested in, in continuing than starting me with a character who I may or may not find appealing enough to hope that they get into uh, some sort of um, 
plot eventually. Right. A big sign that you've gone awry with your opening, or rather you need to cut your opening, is that you have the character waking up in the morning and going about their daily routine, that you're introducing them while they're not doing anything in particular, and then you're waiting for them to come upon that conflict, that essential, I want this to happen, I fear that will happen opposition. So one of the big pieces of writing advice that you want to follow in order to hook people into your stories or get editors uh, to pay attention to them is to open as late into the action as you possibly can. So, and you can, in prose, uh, you can easily move back and forth in time in a way that is awkward in uh, cinema and in television, although television actually does this a lot now and not very well, is you can (laughs) have the character, you know, performing the heist or sneaking into the place or uh, trying to pose as the uh, Serbian ambassador. And then you can go back. And once you've set that up and created the fear that your imposture of the Serbian ambassador is going to fail, or uh, you're worried that the heist is, is going to go awry, or you're hoping that it will succeed. Or conversely, if it's a, you know, an antagonistic protagonist, you might hope for them to fail. That you set up what's going on and then you can go back and fill in through internal monologue or recollection why exactly that happened to the extent you need to know. And that's another tip I think is to avoid starting off with a lot of exposition is tell us as the rule always, especially in short stories is tell us as little as we need to know in order to understand the proceedings and anything that just sort of cool, that sort of fills it in, especially that fills in the, way that an imaginary world works, cut that out, Mm -hmm. excise it. It's not telling your story for you. If you don't absolutely need it to follow the story, uh, it should not be anywhere in your story, but especially shouldn't be at the beginning. I always want to think that it's O. Henry, but it probably isn't, who used to give the advice that after you've finished your short story, cross out the first three pages, and then you have a short story. It's it's not O. Henry, but but it's someone of that ilk that, that was, you know... Saki, maybe? Maybe it was Saki, although that seems awfully helpful for Saki. Um, <laughs> and and the other name that is in my brain attached to it is Faulkner. But, of course, if you've ever read Faulkner, that doesn't make any sense either. Right, because <laughs> so much of his stuff was very experimental and is exactly, meant to be challenging. Yeah. And if you're trying to write Faulkner, a lot of this does, does not apply. Uh, <laughs> yes. We already have a Faulkner. Uh, and his books are still in print, so I would advise against that. But we're we're we're, we're full up on Faulkner. Yeah, so I I think that you know you're you're right. And if you, one of the interesting things that you can do is you can look at someone who's a good writer, and maybe you you look at their earlier work, or you know, it's like uh, Fitzgerald has some early short stories, and you can sort of look at those and say, all right, where is the absolute latest place I could start reading this story? and know what's going on. And, you know, you'd, you'd be surprised at how far into some short stories, even by really good writers, you can get without actually losing any sense of the action. And if your prose is not as sheerly delightful as Fitzgerald's, maybe think about starting there. Right, because that's the discipline, is that you can train yourself to not have to write those three pages and then throw them out. Mm-hmm. It's that those things might be in your notes, right? You might decide to imagine for yourself what the character's morning routine is before they... Uh, go off and impersonate the Serbian ambassador, but mm-hmm. that doesn't need to be in your story. And now, do you do you find? And this is something that I sort of go back and forth on. And a lot of it is because a lot of the things that I read are, are is set very much in Earth, and so I don't feel like I need an awful lot of you know setting. If if something happens in a motel room, I know what a motel room looks like. If something happens in Egypt, I know what Egypt looks like. 
do you find that if you're re- reading something in fantasy or in science fiction that you need a as well as an action beat and maybe a character beat that you also need a setting beat something that lets us know here in the kingdom of Dinwidiel everything is in beautiful unicorn aura or do you need to know that on the fiery methane planet of uh Rakshasa 4 that there are you know fumaroles everywhere is is there some setting beat that you feel is necessary for for stuff that doesn't take place in a in a pre-understood world or do you think that is something you can do after you've got the the character beat and the plot beat started i would absolutely make you care about the protagonist and what they are trying to do and then provide uh, and then all the setting is basically exposition and atmosphere so that it's point number three and i would direct people uh, once again to Jack Vance, who is a a master at sketching in a couple of lines, something that's beautifully evocative and and has all sorts of sensory detail and makes you feel you're in another world or on another planet, but does not over-describe. If I uh, look at a story where the first paragraphs are the description of a spaceship or a novel where the... uh, opening chapter is a description of a futuristic power plant and how it works, I am not going to get any further into that story. The novelization of Alphaville is not for you, then. Uh, well, <laughs> Alphaville, again, is another example of experimental storytelling, which right, yeah. sort of deconstructs narrative, and uh, you know that could be the subject for you know a future how to write good. And there are particular examples that I'm thinking of from acclaimed, skilled science fiction writers that do not interests me and I don't continue with it. The, if it's all world building and no human desire that is being uh, thwarted or furthered, um, I'm just not going to continue into it. Now, the fact that there are acclaimed popular writers uh, in that genre who do that indicate that there is some audience for that type of writing. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, if you want to just do that, go ahead. But I, I would suggest that uh, you're going to do something much more powerful if the reader can orient themselves uh, emotionally and narratively. Now, leaving leaving aside the question of short fiction and sort of staying in, in longer form stuff, do you think that the prologue uh, scene, the scene where, you know, the monster murders somebody who's not actually in the main plot, or the scene where the bad guy does something brilliant that only much later will our hero uncover, or anything like that, a, a, a prologue scene is... is ever valid? Do you think that it always indicates a, a sloppy writer who can't organize their material? Do you think that you know it, it all depends on whether or not you're, you're, you're good at writing? What's, what's your take on prologue scenes? I might use the word teaser rather than prologue. Prologue makes me think of the, let's go back in time and tell the story of you know Henry James's ancestors before we mm-hmm. get to Henry James. <laughs> um, but uh, a, a sort of a teaser, which you see a lot in television now, does actually accomplish the goal of making you care about the situation and make seeing one thing that you want to happen and one thing that you don't want to happen, even though the protagonist is absent, right? So you have a, a scene where the monster comes out of the bushes and kills the teenager and rips his head off. You go, oh man, there's a monster on the loose. I hope somebody comes along and stops that monster. And then in the next scene, Joe Murphy, uh, um, monster hunter shows up and you go, oh, okay, here's the person who I'm going to identify with. And they're uh, confident enough that they're going to run across this monster story reasonably quickly and start to deal with it. So it's tired, 
and often trite, but structurally mm-hmm. it's, it's valid if you uh, if you do it well. I'm not sure that that is the world's best sort of advice to be giving on how you write good. Is if you can write good, then go ahead and do that. Well, no, I, I guess <laughs> I'm saying that the, the issue with that when it jars is not one of violating the principles of, of beginning a story. It begins a story just fine. It's yeah. just that it's has become over-familiar through overuse. And one of the things you can definitely do to train yourself to write good is to spot what is no longer fresh, what has been run into the ground, and to find different ways to get at the same problem. And right. But that would be a, a different, also important segment of how to write good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the thing about a prologue is that often a prologue should in some senses be structured like a short story, but just a, or a teaser should be structured like a short story. So all the problems of how to write good, uh, and get your opening to work and to hook you are theoretically there again. And you have to do it twice now, because if you set up a really exciting teaser sequence, and then you have the main character waking up and going through his breakfast routine and, and being told how good he is by the, uh, obvious, uh, romantic foil or whatever you've, you've, vitiated all that momentum and you've, and you've wasted all that valuable time. Right. So, so once you've had the, the teaser where a murder is committed, for example, yeah. that's the instigated in- incident of the story, which is a term we should have already used by now in this segment. <laughs> and so uh, th- something happens to put the story in motion. That's the instigating incident. And it just happens that the protagonist is off stage sometimes for the instigating incident. It's quite often the case that, you know, antagonists drive a narrative, particularly in procedural fiction, more than the protagonists do. But so once you've got that in motion, everything that you present after that has to relate to that in somehow so that, as you suggest, you uh, then uh, jump in your next scene is about the protagonist dealing with the inciting incident. And so, uh, you know, and typically the way that is done in a procedural TV show is that the credits roll and then the problem solver shows up at the crime scene and yes. is drinking coffee and talking about the evidence. And so that furthers that or kneeling over the body. Yeah. And so that they're continuing to deal with that and a, a sort of a weaker or more distributed structure would go over to some other members of the ensemble cast, having some other conversation about some other continuing story thread. Um, it's, there are shows that do that and do it well, but you want to make sure that the uh, you at least follow up one uh, instigating incident with something that that follows on from that. Yeah, the 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 problems of the diabolicalization are certainly. I think we've already talked about it, but they 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 continue to be problems, although it's slowly working its way through the through the system. I guess. Do we have any other examples of really killer openings? I mean, if if you look at you know Elmore Leonard, or you look at Richard Stark, or you look at uh, you know sort of the great uh, short. Uh, novelist crime authors. I think you have sort of the master class in how to have an incident, an instigating incident. Are there instigating incident classics that you can think of in in other uh, in other fields that you want to point to? Well, the, the killer starts with a hit where the Chow Young fat character uh, blinds uh, the woman and then creates his uh, motivation for the the rest of the narrative. Doctor Strangelove uh, starts with the beginnings of the the, the nuclear crisis. I should have uh, created a list of examples here. <laughs> Hamlet uh, yeah, starts with, right. hey, there's a problem. There's a ghost. And, uh, you know, uh, Shakespeare, although he never, uh, Shakespeare is actually an example of someone who starts with the instigating incident, but never with the rare or never or rarely with the protagonist. Um, so, you know, uh, Macbeth starts with, you know, Macbeth's coming back from the war and he's starting to feel his oats and he runs into the witches and, uh, you know, stuff uh, starts moving. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, Shakespeare is actually kind of a, a good example for that because you can look at even in in things where one one assumes that his audience all knew the story, he still is concerned that they are not going to care about this awesome King Henry V, and they need to know you know what's going on with him and and why is he invading France and stuff. And so there's 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 a lot. Uh, well, obviously, there's a lot you can always learn from Shakespeare, but in you know not in questions of of poetry, but in questions of structure. I think that that's another good point that you look at something like, you know, Othello, where we set up with Othello has upended the social order of Venice by basically eloping with um, Desdemona. And now, you know, things are on the hoof. Speaking of openings, it's time to have a closing to this segment and move on to our final segment of the podcast. The alien big cat staring at us from the barren moor and the whirring noises that the gray alien is making over in the corner as he prepares our macaroni and cheese tells us that we've once more entered the indefinable mysterious precincts of the Elliptony Hut. And this week we're going to look at the Centuries of Darkness thesis. Now this may be sort of a uh, a parallel or a follow-up to our recent Velikovsky segment, but Ken, what is the altered chronology of the Centuries of Darkness thesis? The Centuries of Darkness thesis uh, basically assumes that the uh, traditional Egyptian chronology, which was fundamentally fixed to one degree or another right around the turn of the last century, right around 1900, by people like uh, Sir Flinders Petrie, who we have mentioned previously, and other, you know, sort of doyens of Egyptology, uh, turns out to be the the right one in, in their theory, um, and it, according to the Centuries of Darkness people, the odds of that being right when nothing else that they thought about Egyptology was right are also thin, and they specifically look at the fact that if you tie everything to Egyptian chronology, as is traditional in the history of the Near East or the Eastern Mediterranean, you wind up with a lot of weird things that are difficult to understand. And the classic example is the, is the example of the Greek Dark Ages, in which the Greeks, according to the uh, standard theory, are going through their, their lives just happily along, and then right around, call it 1150 BC, give or take, all their cities burn down, and then nothing happens at all for another 200 or 300 years, and then they rebuild all the cities in exactly the same places and go along with their lives. And if you look at it, Purely from that perspective, you get sort of an uh, the, what they call the Greek Dark Ages, in which there's very, very little, uh, or at the at the time, you know, that uh, they were uh, coming with the Centuries of Darkness thesis by now 25, 30 years ago, almost no evidence for what the Greeks were doing during the Greek Dark Ages. And it seems that maybe what you have is a double counting of the Egyptian dynasties, such that you have a extra 300 years tacked onto the Egyptian chronologies. And it becomes much harder to understand the chronologies of the other cultures outside Egypt if you have to tie them to this uh, in usually uh, extended chronology of ancient Egypt rather than a more compressed chronology by which you can say, oh, no, the Greeks just had a big fire and then rebuilt their cities a decade later as opposed to 200 years later and went back to making pottery and doing all their, their Greek things. And so... That is sort of the the, the classic breakpoint, is that 1150 to 
um, to, to 900 era, which turns out to be right around the switch between the end of the New Kingdom and the beginning of uh, what they call the Intermediate Period after the uh, the New Kingdom falls apart in Egypt. That it's it's very very difficult to um, uh, to figure out who's reigning during what time, and there's a lot of dynasties that may or may not overlap. So uh, rather than as uh, the the Manitho, who himself is writing something like 3,000 years after the event, in some cases, thinks all the dynasties don't run, you know, serially, that you have a lot of overlap. And so, like, the 17th and the 22nd dynasty maybe reign at the same time or something like that. And so you wind up with um, uh, a degree of double-counting and artificial extension that if you then apply it to the rest of uh, the classical world, leads you to odd and misapprehended chronologies. So why is this a, a matter of elliptony rather than a matter of controversy between historians? Well, it's mostly elliptony because the notion of the, um, uh, of, of the Greek Dark Ages or the notion of the centuries of darkness has been pretty much universally condemned and traduced by Egyptologists who are, you know, the stuffiest bunch of people who ever stuffed a shirt, uh, by and large. Uh, due to the mummification. Due to the mummification. And they don't like a lot of uh, jumped-up jackanapeses showing up who have probably all read Vilikovsky and gotten crazy ideas from it and start talking nonsense about all the dynasties being out of order. So what has happened is the Centuries of Darkness thesis, although it does tend to offer a lot of possible explanations in a lot of other fields, has been sort of sent into the outer darkness. Now, I'm not going to say that the Egyptologists are wrong, because most theories that come along and have some new take on the ancient world are also nonsense. But I do think that you look at the notion that some of these dynasties are overlapped, and that one single source from the Hellenistic era may not be the absolute word of God on Egyptian chronology. I don't think that that is necessarily something you should read out of court. So it's elliptony in sort of the pure sense in that there is no ascertainable truth. People have had to go back to things like the heliacal rising of Sirius to try and guess at when uh, various Egyptian uh, events may or may not have happened. Uh, and the trouble, of course, is that we're also assuming that the Egyptians kept the same calendar for 3,000 years, which they may not have done. So how do we take this and make it into something uh, actionable in our uh, stories or, or gaming? How, does, uh, how would this come into play somehow in, in one genre or another? Well, I mean, the, the sort of the classic example is that you can say, you know, you're going back into some sort of, uh, you know, time machine and, you know, you have got your, your time machine all set up and you wind up in the wrong period. You wind up in... Um, you know, the, the, the Bronze Age instead of the Iron Age, or you wind up in the Iron Age instead of the Bronze Age, or you have um, uh, Akhenaten hanging out with Theseus, and you're like, well, that makes no sense. And um, uh, it's because some version of the Centuries of, of, of Darkness chronology was uh, right. You can also, if you're doing sort of uh, Mummy's Curse type stuff in the, in the present world, you can maybe have a degree of detective work trying to track down, you know, what the mummy wants depends on actually understanding what's going on in the Egypt of his time. And so it can be the, the theory that your bold uh, scholar or the romantic interest of your bold scholar has, and therefore you uh, have to demonstrate it be, to be true in order to defeat uh, a mummy or an Egyptian curse or something that has come forward. And the notion of a dislocated time can certainly have a symbolic echo 
in our own notion where we have sort of uh, digitized history and the, the, the sort of Baudrillardian theory that um, the history is, is a constantly being rewritten spectacle. You can use, if you're, if you're playing a, a, a high-level William S. Burroughs-type game, you can use the Centuries of Darkness as uh, one of your um, symbolic touch points that there's a lot of collapsed Egyptian history that starts showing up in your present. Uh, as a as a thematic or or dream element, right? And you could use that as the springboard to a, uh, an alternate reality or a time shifting campaign where one of the lead characters is debunking, as any uh, good Egyptologist would, the latest eruption of the centuries of darkness thesis, and then starts to all of a sudden find evidence for it. But they knew it wasn't there the last time they looked, and they start to realize that the history is being rewritten from the bottom up and what is going to uh, how do they stop that where do they go to find out where the uh, uh, locus point of this is or is it just a matter of um, surviving when you know that a wave of altered history is coming toward you and is going to start uh, changing more and more every day and for some reason you are one of the people who gets to keep remembering how things really were but that uh, every session of the campaign more and more of the world has become different and strange. So it could also, as well as being the springboard for an alternate history or a you know, war in history game, it could be the springboard for a magic comes back game where you know, the first session you play, uh, the characters are in the recognizable world and the next session is the recognizable world except there's a, a sphinx on top of the Empire State Building, and then as each session goes on, it becomes more and more of a fantasy world, and most of the people uh, start to change so much that they think they've always lived in a fantasy world, but you still remember the, you know, because you were uh, in an isolation chamber, or you were lead-shielded, or whatever it was, that you uh, remember the old way of life, and your question is, do you want to go back? to the land of iPhones and microwaves, or are you actually perfectly happy to use your scientific knowledge to make yourself powerful in this new fantasy realm? Yeah, the I think that what the Centuries of Darkness, unless you are gifted with players who are really into arguments about Egyptian and Assyrian chronology, which if you are, then knock yourself out, is has got to be, like you suggest, a symbolic equivalent that maybe the Egyptians wrote their imaginary history as a barrier against some force that existed in the past, whether it be near Lathotep or, or Apep or whatever, and that by breaking down this barrier in sort of a Lovecraftian sense, by understanding the past, we have opened the floodgates and let it into our own, and that that past certainly includes magic and it includes all manner of other things. And then your notion of the privileged observer becomes kind of an interesting thing to throw into the whole thing, because of course... What do we what do we know about relativity from from uh, watching Cosmos as small children is that if you're on the spaceship, time moves super fast back on Earth, even though it doesn't seem to move that fast for you. And you could take some of that same what do I want to say that cognitive uh, screw up that is relativity and put it actually into history, such such that for your character, uh, history is only moving along at you know a, a normal clip, but all around you, history is speeding up super fast or collapsing in on itself or in, in some way. Now, in these uh, uh, chronologies, are there uh, cool uh, ahistorical details that you think would be fun to spin out to play an ancient world game, or uh, is all that material actually pretty dry? 
Well, I, I think that um, I think we've talked about David Roll, who was a ex Vilikovskian and may still be a a crypto Vilikovskian, who has written a number of very very dramatic and exciting co- uh, sort of coffee table style brightly colored history books, doing a new chronology. He's sort of a super centuries of darkness. The main centuries of darkness guys they hung out back in the day, and now he's sort of you know. You know, he's rejecting their old sound, and he's going out into a new jazz fusion era of imaginary chronology. But he's got people uh, from the Bible is one of his things. So he, he's found Joseph, and he's found Abraham, and he's found Moses and all these guys. Well, where did he find them? Well, he found them in um, various places in the Egyptian records, as long as you don't feel like you're, um, uh, you know, <laughs> tied down to boring old chronology right, you can yeah. start finding moses all kinds of places and so he um and and, he, and he's got a, a new date for the trojan war and so he's got you know uh famously menelaus shows up in egypt and hangs out there for a decade and so he's found menelaus and so you can have menelaus and i don't know king david or somebody are all hanging out together and so those are the sorts of touch points that people who are not really really um uh incensed about how many she shacks there were or which Ramesses may or may not also have been uh she shack or how many um uh pharaohs Susanus or whether the twenty second dynasty and the seventeenth dynasty are the same thing. You know, people who don't care about that kind of inside baseball are still gonna be interested in, you know, the prophet Joseph or in Moses or in Agamemnon or something. And so David Roll's books I think are your are your source for uh the fun and the thrilling uh, aspects of of this, and um, he he just keeps getting better. And I don't know where he gets the money. Uh, I, maybe the books sell really well, but they're all very very beautiful and and very very colorful and attractive uh, uh, source books. So you know, I would recommend hunting those down. I uh, would not recommend believing them. I think that Peter James's Centuries of Darkness goes about as far as you can go legitimately in this, and even he is maybe a little more than I would than I would go. And interestingly, of course, the best argument in the world against the conventional dating is the Thera eruption, which I think we've talked about a couple of times ago on the podcast, which says that no Egyptian history is longer than we thought it was, that it's not shorter, it's longer, because the uh, conventional date for Thera, according to the archaeology, is about 1500, and they think, no, it's more like 1650 BC, and so that extends it the other direction. Although, as Peter James points out, it it could it could be wrong in more than one way. Right. That he, he could still be right about the later half of it being too long. But the but the theory case is one where there's an awful lot of special pleading going on. And as a non-specialist, I just enjoy watching them argue. Well, speaking of things being too long, that could be said <laughs> of this podcast. So it's time to... Uh, Fortunately, uh, all of our huts have overlapped if you study the stratigraphy correctly. Yes, and uh, now a pyramid is about to fall on all of them. So we're going to flee from our huts and we'll be back next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Ken's Dracula Dossier Kickstarter for Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Set in motion an inciting incident by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as Jacob and Sari. And Gary Shaper. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or revised chronology by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>